The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 41. An Aerial Joyride. I believe that first night at the Atlantic Hotel, actually not so much a hotel, more a modestly comfortable set of apartment buildings, might just have been the best night's sleep of my life. I'd forgotten what it felt like to lie between clean white sheets and to doze comfortably on beyond sunrise. And then, glory be, a hot bath. I was just contemplating my only set of clothes, my tramp's uniform, of course, when there was a knock on the door of my new room. Hardy's Australian friend Bert Tracy was standing in the corridor outside, and when I opened the door, wrapped only in a towel, he walked straight in without the niceties of a greeting. "'Morning,' I said. "'Listen, mate,' Tracy said directly. "'A word. Babe is a generous man, generous to a fault.' "'He certainly is,' I began. "'I can't tell you how much—' "'Yeah, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before,' Tracy said impatiently. "'He's my friend, and if you start taking liberties, or let him down in any way, you will have me to answer to. Is that clear?' "'Ah, yes, of course,' I said, "'but I I have no intention of—' "'I can't tell you how many deadbeats and strays I've had to see off, so watch it, yeah?' Mate, I will, I said, my eyes fixed on the finger he was pointing right into my face. Now, you need to come down for breakfast. We're going to be off soon. I was a little embarrassed to present myself in my stale shabbiness, but I had no choice, so I hurried downstairs. Babe had saved me a chair at his table, and I sat down opposite Madeline, Mrs. Hardy, who was feeding scraps of bacon rind to a small white dog. This is Babe Junior, she said. Say hello to Arthur, baby and she helped the creature wave its front paw. Babe the Third doesn't come down to breakfast. Babe the Third? I asked. We have a capuchin monkey as well, Madeline explained. We're going to have to smarten you up a little, aren't we? Hardy said, scratching his chin. Unfortunately, nothing of mine is going to fit you, clearly. Bert, you're more his size. Do you have anything you might lend to our friend to tide him over? Sure, why not? Tracy grinned with gritted teeth, shooting me another narrow-eyed look. And so, after breakfast, when we piled into Hardy's old fliver, I was wearing a fresh suit, hat and shoes, and when we stopped outside a barber's shop, I was overjoyed. The barber, a flamboyant Italian chap, threw both hands in the air with pleasure when he clapped eyes on Hardy, and he showed us both to adjacent reclining chairs to be shaved and generally spruced. "'Can I ask you something?' I said. "'Why, certainly,' Hardy said. "'How did you acquire the nickname Babe?' Hardy gave me a knowing smile. "'Funny you should ask that right now,' he said. "'Tell you what. Let me answer that shortly, if indeed I still need to.' The Italian barber began to lather Hardy's face, whistling merrily as he did so. "'Now, while we have this little quiet time together,' the big man said, "'let me fill you in on what we do at Vim. The studios are just up the road, and they used to belong to Lubin, who are now our landlords. Mr. Louis Burstein, who you met—' Briefly, I said, he has an arrangement with the General Film Company to provide one new comedy a week, which is known as the Friday Vim. Usually, but not always, these will feature two characters called Pokes and Jabs, played by my good colleagues Mr. Walter Stoll and Mr. Bobby Burns. There are a number of supporting characters, including one habitually called either Fatty or Plump, (coughs) yours truly, and another called Runt, played by Mr. Billy Rouge. I frowned. "'That name rings a bell,' I said. "'Now there is no filming scheduled for today, "'after the mayor's reception last night, "'but there is a meeting for the whole company, "'and as you are to join the company, "'I shall bring you along.' 
Once again, I said, I, I can't thank you enough. Oh, pish and tush, Hardy said. Just then, the barber completed his work, toweling Hardy's face, and then pinching and patting his plump cheeks between his fingers. Nicer baby, he cooed. Nicer baby! Babe Hardy leaned over to me and winked. That's how, he said. A little later, feeling like a new man, I accompanied Babe into the Vim studio, where something like fifty people were gathered, far too many to meet all in one go. I did get introduced, though, to one particular player. This is Billy Rouge. He's from Vaudeville, just like you. Except I was doing it before any of you guys were even thought of, Rouge growled. Seeing him and hearing his rather surly New York accent, I remembered our previous meeting. He was the wiry little acrobat and aerialist who dressed like a Chinaman, and I wondered if he might perhaps remember our conversation over Christmas dinner, so I said, Fancy seeing you in this part of the wild. What? Clearly not. I felt myself going red with embarrassment. This part of the world, I meant. Oh, Rouge said, the wild. We met once, I said. Cedar Rapids. I saw your act too. Frobel and Rouge. Your partner threw you around like a medicine ball. Well, you're one step ahead of every one of these kids, Rouge said. None of these ever took the trouble to go see me. What happened to that act? I asked. We fell out, the silly little acrobat muttered. Imagine that. The chief, Louis Burstein, arrived then, accompanied by a serious little man with a perfectly bald billiard ball of a head, decorated with a moustache uncannily like the one you would see in pictures of the Kaiser. "'Morning all,' Burstein said, and the Vimites, for this was how they styled themselves collectively, I would soon discover, all responded cheerfully. "'Morning, boss!' "'Now,' Burstein went on, "'Mr. Dintonfass here, our business partner from New York,' "'Yah!' said Billy Rouge at this mention of his hometown, managing to combine a cheer with what sounded like the offer of a fight. "'Thanks, Billy. Mr. Dintonfass brings good news, gang. As you know, we have a contract to supply one comedy a week for the General Film Company to run in all their theatres across the country, the so-called Friday Vim. Well, from now on, we will be providing two comedies per week for General.' There will now be a Thursday Vim, as well as a Friday Vim, which means we are going to create a whole new series. Whoops and cheers all round greeted this announcement. Time for our good friends Plump and Runt to come to the fore, I think, don't you? Yeah, the Vimites chorused. About damn time, Billy Rouge muttered. So began a period of frenzied activity. The Vim company split into two, and I joined Babe in the Plump and Runt team. We were going to have to churn out a one-reeler every single week, so ideas were at a premium, and I became a gag man, often thrashing out scenarios with Bert Tracy. He and I hit it off pretty well once we got to know each other a little better. He'd lost friends at Gallipoli, it turned out, just as I had. I was particularly proud of one little sequence that emerged at my suggestion, where Plump and Runt were plundering the henhouse of a farm, and there were so many eggs they decided to use them as golf balls. The yoke-spattering mayhem was a high point of the early plump and runts, even though Billy Rouge was not much of a golfer. Babe, on the other hand, would have played the links all day, and then sung all night if he could. That was a great gag, he confided afterwards, but it was funnier when it was you showing Billy what to do. I'm afraid I really got off on the wrong foot with old Billy Rouge. One night at the Burbage I was telling the story of the landlord we had back in Philadelphia at the lodging house overlooking the baseball ground and his comical Irish lisp. I'd worked it up into quite a turn by this time, and it had always gone down well, particularly when I got to the part where he went on about how baseball fans like to shit on my roof, so they do. 
Babe got a good old laugh out of it, I remember, and so did Bert and Billy Bletcher and his wife Arlene and Willard Lewis, the director, but when I looked around the grinning group, old Billy was giving me the evil eye. "'My mother was Irish,' he said, "'and I'll not sit here to listen to any more of this.' He got up and left, to much eyebrow-raising, and at the time I didn't think too much of it. He was a miserable presence at the best of times, and the evening was a lot more cheerful after he'd departed. Shortly after this, though, we heard the news of the rising in Dublin, the Irish bid for independence, and the last stand at the post office. Then, in the days that followed, about the executions too. For the Americans it was difficult to digest, because the English were historically both allies and villains, and so they were sympathetic with the Irish, whilst also unsettled by rumours that the rebels had attempted to make a deal with the Germans. There was absolutely no doubt where Billy Rouge's sympathies lay, however, and as the only Englishman within sneering range, I began to bear the brunt of his resentment. Those few delicious occasions when I actually made it on screen as a supporting comedian began to dry up, and I was sure it was down to Rouge having a sly word in the director's shell-like. Rouge apart, the Vim Company were a close-knit bunch, and we would make our flickers by day, and then all pile along to the Burbage or to Cutie Pierce's roadhouse after dark to hear Babe sing and drink the night away. At the weekends we would all go to the beach and just muck around together like a bunch of big kids. Whenever we went out to the coast, my eye would invariably be drawn to the horizon, and my mind's eye beyond it towards England, towards Tilly and Wallace. It had been so long, but there was still a dull ache around my heart when I thought of them. However, a young girl called Ray Godfrey was much closer to what was now my home, and looked spectacular in a bathing suit to boot, and I found her a most welcome distraction. Meanwhile, the Plump and Runt films became a popular hit. Babe was a marvel. His face was so expressive, and his huge frame so unexpectedly nimble, and somehow his sheer likability shone out of the screen, even when he was playing a rogue or a villain. Rouge, on the other hand, was a mechanical performer with an acrobat's precision, but without Babe's funny bones. The flickers were a success despite Rouge rather than because of him, as there was no sort of rapport between the two leads. They weren't really a team. Often they would go for almost a whole film without sharing the screen, as Rouge preferred to do his own meticulous thing rather than engaging in scenes with Babe, and you could see what was behind this thinking. When the two of them were together, everyone was looking at the other guy. Still, the Thursday Vim was well publicised outside cinemas and in the papers, with Babe described as 350 pounds of plumpness and Rouge as 115 pounds of runtness. People loved them, and the production line rolled on smoothly enough. Until, that is, we got to an aerial joyride. The reviews for the Plump and Runt series had been pretty complimentary, but more and more they were describing the movies as though Babe were the star and Billy Rouge was merely the supporting artist. Sometimes Billy didn't rate a mention at all. So he decided to push for a Plump and Runt film which centred more around his character, and Babe was sufficiently affable that it quickly came to pass. The story of this one was that Runt was trying to impress his girlfriend, played by lovely Ray Godfrey, who changed her name shortly after because it kept being mistaken for a man's. Runt can't afford much, though, and has to settle for an old fliver, a topless Model T Ford, in point of fact, Babe's very own automobile. Runt is unable to drive, and so he hires Plump as his chauffeur, and heads around to pick up his date. However, because the car is so narrow, and the driver so wide... There is no room for poor Runt to sit beside his girl. He is obliged to balance perilously on the axle, and once the car gathers some speed, Runt is thrown high into the air, 
and Babe is so taken with the girlfriend that he doesn't even notice. The rest of the film will be taken up with Runt's attempts to catch the car with the help of the police, but he's thwarted when it unexpectedly launches into the skies and begins to fly around in the aerial joyride of the title. Billy Rouge was doing his own stunts, of course, and proud of it. He was an acrobat. Don't worry about a thing. He knew how to take a fall. He'd never broken a bone in 25 years. Blah, blah, blah. Babe and Ray started driving the fliver along, with Rouge perched on the back. As they came alongside the camera, they'd picked up a fair bit of speed, maybe just a touch more than they'd practised, and the car bounced on its springs as it hit a pothole. Rouge stepped onto the spinning axle and was catapulted up like a rag doll on an aerial joyride of his own in what looked like an absolutely spectacular stunt. Director Willard Lewis clapped his hands with glee. Babe turned the motor car and rolled back cheerfully, and everybody was very excited until they looked over at Billy Rouge, who hadn't moved from where he'd landed in a heap. I was amongst the group who ran over to see if he was all right, and it was plain to see that the acrobat had broken his duck and both his legs. Chapter 42. Plump and Runt. The Vim crew stood around morosely, kicking pebbles against the curb, as two ambulance men lifted poor Billy Rouge onto a stretcher and began to cart him over to their vehicle. He'd come round by this time, but wished he hadn't, and he was groaning and moaning something terrible. The two bearers raised the stretcher up to slide it onto the back of the ambulance, and Billy let out a roar, which was matched suddenly by a great shout from Willard Lewis, the director, who had been chewing his lip and fingering his moustache, clearly in the throes of devising some plan of action. "'Wait!' he yelled. "'Put him down!' "'Ah!' went Billy Rouge as the ambulance men put him back down on the floor with a little bump and looked at our leader with an inquiring expression on their faces. "'We need his clothes,' Lewis said. "'What?' Rouge bellowed. "'We need his clothes. We need to strip him before you take him away.' "'Oh, for the love of...' Babe said. "'I'm serious,' Lewis insisted. "'We can get this one in the can today.' So while the veteran acrobat gasped, complained and cursed our esteemed director and for a brief merciful period passed out, Bert Tracy and Emery Hampton, the prop guy, wrestled him out of his top clothes and left him slumped on the stretcher in his combinations. And as the ambulance bounced off up the road, Willard Lewis looked around at those of us who were left. Right, he said. Who wants to be runt? As it happened... I was the only member of the company who had not already appeared in a shot, thanks to Rouge's poisonous anti-British prejudice, and moreover did not need to be excused in order to carry out another job, besides which I was a decent match for Billy Rouge's build, especially as I had been more or less starving for the previous six months and was the runtiest I had ever been in my life, so I found myself nominated, seconded and cast. It wasn't exactly stepping into dead man's shoes, because Billy wasn't actually dead, but he wasn't going to be needing his shoes for a while, that was for sure. "'We just need to pick up a few shots and this one is done,' Lewis explained, as I tried not to pay too much attention to the damp warmth of the unfortunate Rouge's trouser legs. "'I'll keep you in a fairly long shot, pull your cap down to shade your handsome features, and it'll be a cinch.' For the rest of that afternoon, and the whole of the next day, I played Runt opposite Babe Hardy's plump, or more accurately, I played Billy Rouge playing Runt opposite Babe Hardy's plump.' 
After a little while, we both managed to forget the painful circumstances that had brought us together in this way, and we began to have fun. In fact, we began to have a lot of fun. Babe was, as I said, a naturally brilliant physical comedian, and we came up with some prime gags for that little flick. There was one sequence left to shoot, for example, early on in the story, where Babe was nervous and taking a drink to calm himself down. He was too wound up to wait for the glass to even reach his lips. He just tossed the drink up in the air and caught it in his mouth. There was no actual liquid, of course, it was all just pantomime, but Babe sold it perfectly, as Fred Kitchen had done for Carno when I saw it perform first, but I didn't let on about that when I suggested it. We assembled a little anxiously a couple of days later to watch the finished item before it was copied and shipped out for the upcoming Thursday. Willard Lewis was smirking confidently, and all eyes were on Lou Burstein, the chief. Well, he said when the end card came up, you have all done a marvellous job. Another winner. How lucky that all Billy's scenes were done before his accident, which looks sensational, by the way. Well done managing to keep that in. Actually, Will Lewis said, Billy's scenes weren't all done. Some of that was Arthur here. What? You're kidding. No. We finished the flick with Arthur as Runt, and you didn't even notice. I didn't. You're right. It didn't even occur to me. Well, how about that? Babe patted me on the back, and the chief turned to me. Thanks, Arthur. You sure got us out of a tight scrape there. Happy to help, I said. So, gang... We need to turn our minds to what to do for next Thursday's Thursday Vim. Babe put his hand up. Well, what about another plump and runt? Well, I'm afraid the news on Billy is he's going to be on his back for at least a couple of months. I sure am sorry to hear that, Babe said, and I only wish him well, I truly do. But what I meant was, what about a plump and runt with me and Arthur? The rest of the gang all looked at one another, and I felt a flutter of butterflies in my stomach. "'You think?' Burstein said. "'Sure. We only played it for a day and a half, "'but I reckon there was more chemistry between me and Arthur "'than I've had in half a dozen pictures with Billy.' "'Who is not going to like it one bit, by the way?' Bert Tracy warned. "'We could. I mean, it could work,' Burstein mused. "'But the sticking point would be all the publicity "'we've already put into setting up the team. "'It's going to look mighty odd if we change horses midstream kind of thing. "'Unless—' "'Unless what, Lou?' Babe pushed. Well, Burstein began, shooting me a rather sneaky look, as though anticipating a problem. It would have to be billed as if it were still Billy, because he's the name. Now, come on, Lou, that's not really fair, Babe said, but I stopped his protests by putting my hand on his big arm. Fine by me, I said with a grin. And it was. I'd been using my alias ever since that awful morning back in Dodge City, not that anybody much had even asked me my name while I was destitute and begging, and I had no particular interest in making any kind of star out of Mr. Arthur Smith. Anonymity would suit me nicely. "'Are you sure?' Burstein frowned beadily. "'You're not going to go along and then cut up rough later?' "'Lou, for goodness sake,' Babe said. "'He said it was fine by him, so shake on it, and let's get to wake.'" The first picture I did as Billy Rouge slash Runt was called 30 Days, and we started work on it later that very same day. It was a nice little idea in which the boys get busted for playing poker and get sent down for the eponymous stretch without the option. They're scared to tell their wives, though, so they pretend they're off on a business trip. In prison there are some nice scenes, and they get entangled with a fellow prisoner, Bert Tracy, who gets released at the same time as them and follows them home. 
They try and explain him away as a business contact, then as a detective in disguise, but they cannot shake the fellow off until their wives chase him away, wielding big knives. It was a whole lot of fun, and we worked well as a team right away, so much so, in fact, that the ideas which bubbled up for subsequent stories all featured Plump and Runt getting involved in various scrapes together, rather than as love rivals trying to kill one another, as had been the norm when Billy Rouge played the character. Vim were not the first to hit upon the idea of a big man and little man team. It was a staple of Carnot's for a start, and one of his big men had even started to crop up in Chaplin's mutual pictures, a vast Scotsman called Eric Campbell, and we would not be the last by any manner of means, but I think Babe and I had something special going right from the start. In any event, we celebrated as though we had created a masterpiece, with Babe in fine voice as usual, and champagne flowing like water. All through the long hot summer of 1916, we made plump and runt comedies, one a week, and I was having the time of my life. We Vimites worked hard, and we played hard, and the whole of Jacksonville was our playground. We would career about the place in our ancient automobiles, looking for new places to film scenes, and the citizens would fall over themselves to be extras in the background, or to rent us furniture, or just to watch our spectacular shenanigans. On one occasion, I remember, Babe and I had to make a spectacular leap from one high building to another. I was pretty nimble, but even so, the idea of it was giving me palpitations. The thought of Babe, 300 pounds of plumpness, attempting the jump, was even more alarming. He was game, though, more than game, and surprisingly light on his feet. You should have seen the man dance. And when the time came for the shot, we pinned our courage to the sticking place and launched ourselves across the divide. I sprawled in a heap on the gritty tarmac roof opposite, but Babe landed triumphantly on his twinkling toes and gave a little bow. Down in the alleyway below, we had attracted quite a little crowd, and they burst into spontaneous hooting and applause. When we had twenty flickers in the can, Louis Burstein figured we'd earned a week off. Ray Godfrey and I had been spending a fair bit of what little spare time we'd had together, and she'd taken to calling me Smithy, which was adorable. The two of us nipped down to the Everglades, where we spent a hot and steamy week together. I can honestly say I have never been bitten so many times, and I'm not just talking about mosquitoes. I arrived back at my apartment, as you do after that kind of break, both rested and exhausted, to find that a letter had been pushed under my door by the bellhop. It was from Cambridge, in my father's studied formal cursive, like a letter from a lawyer. I tore open the envelope and pulled out a couple of sheets of paper, headed with the college address on Trumpington Street, and dated a couple of weeks earlier. "'My dear son,' he began, "'I can understand changing one's name from Smith to Dando for the purposes of show business, but not vice versa. I do hope you're not in some kind of trouble.' I chuckled mirthlessly. My old man had a nose for some kind of trouble. Thirty years of bailing out young men who'd pinched a policeman's helmet for a lark will give you that. "'The college is a very different place these days.' The main buildings have been given over to a centre for officer training, and the mood is sombre. So many bright young lads joined up, and every week, it seems, brings word of another college member lost. It is heartbreaking to think of a whole generation of young men cut down before they even reach their prime, or discover what they might have been capable of. There are plans to engrave a lasting memorial onto the wall of the old court cloister, leading to the chapel. I hope to God there will be no need to take up any more space than that. Your brother Lance was recalled to the colours despite the service he had already given in southern Africa. He is at the front in France, and your mother and I are proud, of course, but greatly anxious. 
I thank God and the good fortune you have had that you are stranded in the United States of America. At least your mother and I have a little peace of mind, knowing that the madness will not spread so far. I was touched, I must admit, by this somewhat uncharacteristic show of affection, both for me and for Lance, and I had to pause for a minute to gather myself. "'Now I find I must chide you for your thoughtlessness, young man,' my father went on. "'Ha! I thought, this is more like it. "'Not long ago we received a visit from a quite delightful young lady and her two-and-a-half-year-old son. "'Imagine our shock when she informed us that this was our grandson, Wallace.' The pages dropped from nerveless fingers onto the rug. Tilly. Tilly had been to Cambridge. I snatched the paper up again and devoured the news. He's a grand little chap, and I took the greatest pleasure in showing him the newts in the lily pond by the master's lodge, which so captivated you when you were of a similar age. His mother and I spoke at cross-purposes for some time, before I realised that she was under the impression that you were no longer in the land of the living, and indeed had perished in the Lusitania tragedy. The news that you were in fact still breathing caused her to faint dead away, and it was fortunate indeed that her travelling companion, a fine gentleman in the dashing uniform of a Scots Highlander, kilted all, was on hand to catch her as she fell. Happily she was recovered by the time they took their leave of us, and now that she has your address she will no doubt write herself in due course. You will let us know, won't you, of any further developments, and whether there are any other grandchildren that we are as yet unaware of. Your loving parents, etc., this was almost too much to take in. Tilly and Wallace had been to Cambridge and met my father and mother. She'd thought I'd gone down with the Lusitania. No wonder she hadn't written. My heart ached for her, how she must have suffered. But how had this happened? And who the hell was this fine Scots Highlander, by the way, in his dashing uniform and kilt? No letter from Tilly followed, and all I could do to take my mind off her was to throw myself into the hurly-burly of filming. From time to time we would discover that we had rubbed the locals up the wrong way. We came up with the idea for a bank robbery flick, and decided to film it on the main street on a Sunday. The bank would be closed, and we could shoot the outside of it without inconveniencing anyone. That was our thinking. And we could make use of the deserted streets for our getaway. As in every southern town, the Sabbath in Jacksonville was set aside for church and prayer, and churchgoers wrote irate epistles to the Florida Tribune Union and Metropolis for days. Similarly, when we needed a shot of a fire engine in action, the fire brigade were unimpressed when we called them out to a false alarm or two. When the sun went down, Jacksonville society revolved around Babe Hardy. He was the sun, and everyone else was just so many little planets and moons. He would sing with Madeline at the Burbage, and I would dance with the willowy Miss Godfrey. And then when that closed for the evening, we would all move six miles upriver to the Panama Club, where the entertainment was organised by a luscious contralto called... Margaret Arata, with whom Babe would duet. And while he would charm audiences night after night, the rest of the Vimites would drink away the darkness until it was time to crank the camera handles once again. Often in the small hours, I would walk out on the sand with Ray, and we would watch the incredible tropical storms out to sea. Sometimes it was a hell of a light show, sheets of lightning crackling back and forth across a silver screen of hot rainless clouds, and it was almost possible to believe that we were watching the flashbangs from France all the way across the Atlantic. And as Ray held my hand and pulled herself close to me, pretending to be scared so as to begin canoodling, I played along, little thinking that the storm clouds were gathering right above my head and about to break. <laughs> 